Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to another episode of Nakubo in Brief, where we explore the issues shaping the business of higher education. I'm Brian Dixon, Director of Student Financial Services and Educational Programs at Nakubo, and I'm joined today by Justin Dreger, President and CEO of the National Association of Student Financial Aid Administrators. Justin, thanks so much for being with us here today. No problem. Thanks for having me, Brian. On this episode of Nakubo in Brief, we're going to be talking about income share agreements kind of an alternative to what we traditionally think of when we discuss financial aid. But but before we do, Justin, could you just give us a brief overview of your association and what it does for our listeners uh, who, who may not know? Yeah, for those who aren't familiar with us, we're sort of the Nakubo for financial aid administrators. So we represent financial aid offices at 3,000 colleges and universities around the country. Our members serve 90% of students enrolled in higher education. And um, we cover everything from federal student aid, we get into state financial aid, and institutional aid policies. Um, so much like Nakubo, we do everything from training, keeping schools in compliance with federal regs, and advocacy work. What are these? What are these income share agreements? And, and really, how are they different from, you know, like a student loan? Yeah, income share agreements are are sort of having a moment right now. And, um, you know, not very many schools are actually running them. But what I've told aid offices all over the country is um, you want to be familiar with these because I promise you um, almost every college president and CFO has heard of them. So um, they're very hot right now. They're, they're basically a contract between an entity and a student providing the student money to go to college. But Unlike a loan, there's a contract that has to be fulfilled that's usually based on a percentage of the student's income when they start working. Um, and, and there's lots of ramifications because of that, but that in a nutshell is an income share agreement. Maybe, maybe um, I'm, I'm a little naive, but it, it still kind of sounds like a loan, right? Because you're, you're paying back, but, but you're saying that it's, it's not. It's, it's paying of the individual's a portion of the individual's income, not paying back a specific balance? Right. So I think there is, from the borrower's perspective, on the face of it, 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 you know, it, it walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, acts like a duck, isn't it a duck? And to some extent, maybe it's, it's parceling out um, things a little too closely. Or, but on the face of it, yes. I mean, it's, a, it's an obligation that has to be met, and it will be a percentage of of the borrower's income, and it's an ongoing payment obligation. So in that way, it's very much like a loan. Um, the difference is, and, and this is where I think it's probably worth schools doing some investigative work before they jump into this with both feet. There are lots of different ways to set up an income share agreement, but they're sort of walking this line right now between if it's a loan, it's subject to all of these other truth in lending and consumer protection requirements. Right. And if it's not a loan, 
then it doesn't have to meet those. In fact, there's not really a federal way and few and far between state ways to regulate and control income share agreements. So in terms of consumer protections, I think there's a lot for all of us to just have our eyes very wide open as we go down this road. It sounds a little kind of like the wild, wild west, given that there's such a you know lack of, of regulation. Is Congress looking at this? Um, is there anything in the works on the Hill? Yeah. So um, wild, wild west is usually not a like positive term for when you're describing an industry. <laughs> so I, I think that's fair, though. There, there's the potential for this to go really off the rails. Now, um, let me let me say two things about this. The first is that very few schools have actually entered into like a formal income share agreement with with students. And so there are different models and we can talk about those in a few minutes, but the schools who've done it so far appear to have approached it pretty responsibly. There is a third-party income share agreement company, it's a not-for-profit actually that um is making income share agreements directly to students um outside of a, a a school, but most colleges have their hands in the income share agreement itself, whether as a funder or working with a third party. So all of that is to say that the schools who, the few schools that are doing it are doing it with consumer protections in mind. That's important. Um, and then in terms of regulation, there are some state regulations on the book and I'm not an attorney. I'm probably not the best person to be talking about all the different state Sorry. regs. Um, I assume colleges will be familiar with their own state regulations, but at the federal level, we have several pieces of legislation that have been introduced and I'll add introduced bipartisanly. Um, you know, we have. Uh, two bills specifically that sought to define exactly what an income share agreement is. Some of them had like uh, the bills had limits on what percentage could actually be taken out of a borrower's paycheck once they um, are working. Um, So there were some caps in there. There were also in federal rules, um, some things around um, what these funds could be used for um, and then a legal and sort of a tax framework around them, which, you know, Nukubo, you guys are very well familiar with the way taxes um, ingratiate themselves into all aspects of any financial instrument. So the, all of that sort of is what lawmakers, I also add two, you know, two sub bullets to this. One is Senator Warren in particular, who's on banking and, and finance has, has shown a particular interest in this. She and several other senators sent letters to around a half dozen schools about a year ago, asking them specifically for the terms and conditions of all their income share agreements. So because this is so new and because there's no federal legislation, schools jump into this, it's going to be, you should expect some scrutiny. And then the the final piece uh, I'll just say about this is that income share agreement companies themselves recognize the writing on the wall. And to that end, in 2019, they actually went to Congress. And there's not a lot of instances where companies or schools, for that matter, speak up and say, please regulate us. But in this instance, they went forward with a letter and basically proposed, you know, things like establishing a federal definition of an income share agreement. um, What would a proper disclosure framework look like? What are national minimum income thresholds? Things like this, um, which is good. I mean, I think this is a good thing. Whenever an industry stands up and says, we want to, we want to take this from the wild, wild west and turn this into something that is a legitimate form of a business that helps consumers and us. I, I think that's a good thing. They don't want Congress to kind of over, over correct, over, over regulate. So you're, trying to get- yeah. I think, you know, I think we've, we've worked a lot together, Nukubo and NASPA and, and my advocacy policy is always, um, it's better to be at the table than on the menu. So correct. Um, you want to be in the conversations, not be dictated to on how you're going to be regulated. And I think the income share agreement companies are, 
and schools are aware, aware of that. Given that kind of absence of any formal, you know, federal level regulation, legislation, definitions, um, you said pretty much that these, the, the schools and the companies are kind of self-regulating um, until, but, but it sounds like they're, they're, you described that they're kind of, you know, still the, making sure that there are protections for students and, and that there's nothing, um, nothing crazy going on there. Yeah, you, Brian, you and I have been around long enough to know that there are two risks po- college presidents have to pay attention to and CFOs. I mean, one is the financial risk and liabilities of screwing something up and having to pay a fine or a liability. But the second is a little harder to quantify, but it's the reputational risk. So yep. colleges who do this want to be on the right side of that and know that Congress is already looking at it. Attorneys general will be looking at it. So you want to manage that reputational risk if somebody's going to do this by doing it the right way, protecting your students and, and uh, consumers. What would you say are the, the benefits um, of, a, of an income share agreement to students? Are there benefits to institutions of higher education? Kind of how, is, how, how do you see this shaking out? Yeah, I was, um, I, you know, in preparation for this conversation, I was looking at a couple different of the uh, school models out there, like how schools are using this. Um, the one that probably is most prominently known is um, Purdue, and theirs has been around the longest. Um, Mitch Daniels um, was the one, you know, Purdue's president and former governor, and um, he, he was very interested in sort of exploring these private sector solutions to what he saw as, as issues that were limiting his students. So um, when you stack an income share agreement, they use them as a supplemental loan. So as a replacement for something like a, um, like a grad plus loan. And if you were to stack an income share agreement at Purdue against a plus loan, I mean, that might make some sense because the terms and conditions around plus loans just aren't very favorable, particularly in a market where interest rates are like rock bottom right now. The other thing that it does, it gives the school some control over the amount of debt. Now, I know these aren't debts, these are contracts, but it gives the school some control. So the Purdue model actually looks at the major that you're in, and then it will determine um, how much of an income share agreement a total amount they would let you enter into it into a contract. And so they do that based off of metrics that show, you know, if you graduate in this, your average earnings will be this. And so they try to craft an income share agreement around that. And that sort of provides some protection, like good underwriting does, to the borrower as much as it, it does to the to the school. But other schools are using them for students who don't qualify for federal student loans at all. So if you're talking about dreamers, for example. Um, this might be a viable option for them if the school or an outside entity is going to fund them through an income share agreement. So the nice thing about the the unregulated piece, and this is the line that will you know will be clipped and come back to haunt me one day. But the nice thing about that is it allows a lot of experimentation up front, so we can sort of see if there's a niche or a fit um, in the higher education financing model for this. I, I, I understand, you know, to some degree as well for the students, just like you want to you know, diversify investments, say you want to maybe diversify your debt. And I know, again, it's not debt and this is kind of this game of, of semantics here, but um, uh, diversify that kind of obligation, whether it's to pay off a loan or to pay, um, to, to pay a portion of your income. Um, what about then, uh, you mentioned kind of looking at majors and programs. What about though, then those programs um, that might not produce um, like a high earner, um, right? So they're not going to be paying as much into back into the system. How is, is, is that addressed? Um, are, are schools kind of 
taking that into account as they develop these so that kind of certain programs are offsetting others? I, I, I don't know if that's the right way to, to, to phrase that, um, but well, I didn't yeah. know if you had any thoughts there. No, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. So there's a couple things to keep in mind. These are very new. So we can draw up all sorts of, of um, actuarial uh, models about, you know, will, it, it's not that all, all that different from healthcare, right? The idea is that we're going to pool a bunch of people together and we're going to change some levers. And those levers on a school side might be um, the percentage of income of people in certain majors. Maybe it's the total amount of the contract that we'll issue. Um, maybe it's um, the, the terms and conditions to fulfill the contract, because unlike a debt, you don't pay back your principal balance. You have to fulfill the contract. And that's usually a multiple of the original contracts. It might be two to three times or something um, or, or the total amount of time frame that they repay. So schools have all these levers that they could pull. But at the end of the day, um, the idea here is these aren't, aren't grants. And so there has to be some return on investment to, to ensure the perpetuity of the income share agreement. Um, so the Purdue model, they, they went out to their a foundation um, their, their foundation to help support this. There's a non-for-profit that's raising donations to do it. Other schools are using their endowment or a portion of their endowment earnings. The point is, is that at the end of the day, there has to be some sort of perpetuity of funding. And to that end, um, there we start getting into maybe some of the downside of this because who's paying and is it equitable? And have we gone into the full commoditization of higher education at this point, which is like the English degree, which is the perpetual used as the perpetual joke in higher ed. Do they not get funded and all the MBAs do? Right. Yeah. Cause it, it seems to me like if, if, you know, if I were um, an investor, let's I'm using air quotes here in this. Um, uh, if, if I wasn't, you know, the nicest guy, I might start to pick winners. Right. Yeah. And, and programs and majors that would that would pay me. I'm using air quotes again. Uh, uh, their income is going to be larger, and thus the amount paid to me would be larger. Yeah. I, so when we think of, I think that's that's the concern. The concern is is that higher education, and this gets into a much larger debate. But this is an outcome of the commoditization of higher education, which is if we solely focus on return on investment for students, how much they'll earn on the on the back door on the way out. Um, then an income share agreement makes a lot of sense because that's all we're concerned about. But that's not higher education, at least traditional higher education. Um, higher education is about subsidizing people to increase, you know, civic um, engagement. It's to um, give people the the ability to do lifelong learning and do critical thinking and communication. And studies have shown people in the humanities in the long term do better than even some engineering students. Engineers kill everybody like the 10 years, first 10 years out of college. But, um, you know, liberal arts do just fine in the long term. And so uh, we do reach this point, which is a debate that's been raging for decades now, but it's sort of like, you know, everybody picks on the English majors and the philosophers. And if this, if income shares were to become like a market force, um, I don't think it's very difficult to see a scenario where like those programs go unfunded. And so that, that's where I think we'd have to be careful of the proverbial slippery slope. Right. And that, that may be a, a, a conversation for a whole nother episode. But I think, um, to your point, I think maybe then that's why schools that are dipping their toes in the waters of income share agreements 
like you said, they're, they're not using these to fully finance a student's education. It's, it's, a, it's a portion of their overall picture. Um, right. So it's, it's, not to- it's not dependent on that um, if you're looking through that lens. Um, and the other thing is kind of weird, right? If I, if I finish my program and, you know, I marry a millionaire, a billionaire, and decide not to enter into the workforce, I could potentially not pay anything, correct? Yeah. I mean, if you, you know, if you opt out of a traditional job market entirely and, and, you know, like the people that you read, like in the various magazines that decided to travel the world for five years, those, those people aren't me and I don't know those people, but (laughs) neither do I, Yeah, they, they might not have income. So in that, in that sense, um, there would be no contract. I mean, the contract is a percentage of your income. And if your income is quite low or below a certain threshold, you don't repay. But, but Brian, I would say, I think there's a, a different concern, which is, um, you know, studies have shown that low income students from, from low income families tend to underestimate how well they'll do in college and often underestimate how well they'll do after college. And so some folks who might be better off taking just a regular federal or sometimes even private loan because they could f- pay that loan off if they do better than expected, might find themselves stuck in a, you know, 20 year income, 15 to 20 year income share agreement. And might be, I I think the unanswered question for me, big unanswered question is, is this going to be more progressive status quo or regressive? And if you find a lot of students who are hedging, um, who end up doing quite well, they'll pay more than their other students, um, cohorts who just take regular loans. You had mentioned, uh, Justin, the uh, there's some different models for these, and I know we're we're getting close uh, to the end of our time together here. But I was wondering if you could um, just share what what those look like to give uh, listeners kind of an idea of the various flavors that are out there. Yeah, so I, we talked a little bit about the model that Purdue follows. Um, they use it as gap financing, so it's an alternative to parent or private loans. They limit the amount that you can enter into into a contract by your year in school, and then the the income share and the payment terms they all vary um, by the student's major. Um, if you looked at another program like Colorado Mountain College, they're offering these as alternative to federal loans for undocumented students. Um, if you looked at the University of Utah all of their students are paying back the same income share. So they're not doing it like Purdue, where it's completely dependent on different majors. All their students have the same terms and conditions, at least they did as of of last year. Um, Well, they do have different terms and payment windows based on major, but the percentage is is the same. And then I talked about that not nonprofit. It's better future forward. It's a direct-to-student income share agreement versus being a link to a, a school. And they target students who would not likely qualify for private loans. So they're using it as a private loan replacement tool. Um, so they, they, their requirements are like full-time study. You have to be making good academic progress. Um, and they only do them for select schools that have good student outcomes. And they don't do differences by major. So like I said, there's all these different levers that schools or funders could, could play with. Um, and then they're going to have to craft a model around that. What happens to a student who doesn't complete the program, they don't graduate. What tools do the folks running the ISAs have to uh, get payments from students who don't pay? It is a contract. And so the students, by entering into this contract, are agreeing to fulfill the terms of the contract. And then, like any contract, that contract is enforceable by law. So 
Um, I, I don't know, Brian, if they, you know, use private debt collection agencies the same way, but it is an outstanding contract with a payment due. So, um, I'd have to do a little bit more investigative work there. Um, in terms of, um, the question you asked about, um, what do they do with students who don't complete? So that, that's all, that all has to be written into the terms. And, and that's why often you won't see schools considering income share agreements for like first year students or second year students, um, oh, really? unless they're doing it for possibly parents, um, you know, because parents have established credit and, and jobs. So what they would be looking at are students. I mean, when we say outcomes, we're talking about people taking bets on schools where students are likely to succeed. That's where you're likely going to see, um, at least right now in these early stages, more income share agreements. Since it's not a debt, I guess, bankruptcy considerate, it wouldn't be something that would be dischargeable through bankruptcy because it's not a debt. I haven't seen it in a court yet, so I don't, I don't know. Yeah, that's, that's, I just thought of that one on the fly. And then the other, the other kind of odd question, how, how, how do students report what their income is? Like, how is that verified? Because if I'm making, you know, 65000 and I'm saying, well, I'm only making fifty. are they like submitting tax yeah. forms? Yep. Okay. Yep. There's a there's a proof of what my income is requirement associated with this, but to the to the, back to the legal case for just a second. I mean, right? If these are if these are deemed federal loans by by lawmakers, then you have they, they're subject to everything from like Equal Credit Opportunity Act requirements, Truth in Lending Act requirements, state usury laws, Fair Credit Reporting Act, Military Lending Act. There's there's all right, sorts it's of. It's a huge trigger. Yeah, <laughs> right, that's right. So um, I guess all of that is to say is it's walking this line, and we just we don't have a federal definition yet to know where exactly it falls. And that's why a lot of kind of the the consumer consumer protection folks kind of have raised some flags and, and, you know, rightfully so as we kind of figure all of this out. Um, any, any other um, final thoughts from that angle? And I think. Um, so I, I guess I would say them. from my perspective, income shares are not good or bad. They're not um, righteous or evil. They're, they're an instrument. And to the extent that they can be helpful with appropriate consumer protections, I think it's one we should explore. That's not to say, I think we should um, go full, uh, bore into like a federal income share agreement that replaces federal student loans for all the reasons we talked about earlier. Federal student loans are a good deal for students. We ought to fight to retain them. We ought to fight for increased subsidies for them uh, to the extent that this can be another instrument to help with supplemental funding, then um, I'm all for it. You got to figure it out. A lot of uncertainty That's right. now. Um, well, Justin, this has been tremendously informative. Um, I'll give you a second. You could tell folks kind of where they can find you and NASPA, you know, websites, social media, and the like. Yeah, great. Um, folks can come on over to NASFA.org, N-A-S-F-A-A.org. Um, we have a daily newsletter there that anybody is able to receive. And if your institution's already a, a NASFA member, which I imagine a lot of Nukubo and NASFA uh, schools are the same, then um, you can reach out to your financial aid office and and get our daily information and um, have access to our resources and tools. And Brian, I just want to say to you and, and all of our colleagues over there at Nukubo, we, we love partnering with you. You guys are a very smart, active bunch. And um, I always feel better when, uh, when we're together on advocacy work. So thanks to you and your colleagues. Well, thank you. And I agree. And I, I would echo and reverse that right back to you. Um, all right. So there's obviously a lot more we could talk about. Um, and I hope that as we, we learn more about income share agreements and we start to see 
more results as cohorts, you know, cohorts start and eventually complete their payments. So um, I hope uh, maybe at some point down the line, we could have you back on uh, the podcast and, and get a, an update on where things are. Anytime. Great, great. All right. So that's going to be a wrap. And as always, if you like this episode, be sure to uh, share it with a friend or a colleague. And uh, be sure to give us a rating if you like us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. So thanks again to Justin Dreger. We look forward to seeing you on a future episode. So for Nakubo, this is Brian Dixon, and we will see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>